If you've got a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 7. We're going to read verse 53 and then go through chapter 8, verse 11. As uh, we keep going in week 14 of The Curtain Goes Up, our walk through the Gospel of John. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and wrote, on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, this is a pretty well-known story in Scripture, even for those who maybe not regular church attenders or even uh, an unbeliever. Believer, you, you've probably heard some version of this story or you've heard it referenced or some kind of point made with it. And usually the thought behind it is, hey, Drop that stone, which by the way, is a great thought to drop that stone. But there's far more to this story than just that, even though that is a profound truth. Now, Jesus at this time has grown in his notoriety. He was considered a threat to the religious establishment. They, the Pharisees, the the Sadducees, the the ones in uh, power over the Jews, They wanted Jesus to let them keep playing the religious game that they had been playing. They wanted to do their own version of what it looked like to honor God. Now, we kind of see that today. There are people that we would say kind of have some power and and leadership or some, you know, clout, quote unquote, and you watch them do chaotic, crazy things and nobody says anything to them. You just kind of say, oh, that's just such and such. That's just who they are. And people give them a pass for destructive behavior. Not that any of you have ever experienced that in any church you've ever been in, though you've experienced it. And, And people just say, oh, that's just that's just who they are. They, you know, they don't really mean anything by it. Yes, they do. They do mean something by it. They mean they want to get their way. They mean they want to be able to do what they want to do, regardless of how it feathers out with the word of God. They, they want to go and, and then they want people just to go, oh, that's just who they are. Those kind of things are planned out. They're thought out. It's ridiculous, but it just happens. Okay. Now, Jesus is in the temple court. Some of you are going, I wonder who he's talking about. (laughs) I don't know. People had gathered to hear Jesus teach. And the teachers of the law, those the scribes and the Pharisees, show up with a woman. 
who was caught in adultery. Now let's just play the obvious game. If there's a woman caught in adultery, who should have also been there? A man caught in adultery. Thank you. Boy, y'all are so smart. This Your minds are waking up. If you're starting to detox from your... your, 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 your okay, I, I saw some hands go up. Okay. <laughs> um, but you've got to think about this. Now, this is an absolute brilliant trap that this religious group of leaders has set. Because if Jesus just lets this woman go and says, hey, y'all, y'all need to leave her alone. Don't, don't mess with her. What she, you know, it's not that big of a deal. If he says anything like that, then they're going to be able to accuse him that he's saying the Mosaic law has no credibility. And that blatant disregard of the basis of the Jewish life has no value, then people are going to see him as a heretic and he's going to lose his following. But if he agrees that this woman, yes, she's broken the law, yes, she ought to be put to death, then he's going to be usurping the authority of the Romans because as the occupying power, they were the only ones who could mete out death to anyone. And if he verbalize that, yes, she should be punished in that way, then the Romans are going to want to have to deal with him. And so it is an incredibly brilliant trap. And Jesus engages them with this as the setting, as kind of this scene plays out. Now, Jesus doesn't respond to them verbally, but he does respond with his body language. He bends down and he begins to write on the ground. Now, we have absolutely no idea what he wrote on the ground, and there's been all kinds of speculation. Maybe he was writing the law. Maybe he was writing their sins. Maybe he was writing what they were thinking. I mean, who who knows? But what we do know is that he takes all the focus away from this woman and he places it on himself. And then he raises up and he says, I'll tell you what, whoever of you has never sinned, whoever of you that has done it right every day, every minute, in in every possibility, you grab your stone and you throw it first. And then he just bends back down and he starts to to write again in the sand. It's in, you know, I can I just make this little 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 statement for free. Um, it, it's very easy for us to look at the Pharisees and go, oh, those Pharisees, they're just horrible people. They just they're just always out to mess with people. And, and the problem with that is, is if we're not careful, what we really realize is that we at times become Pharisees. We become Pharisees. Um, here's the truth of this story is there is an amazing amount of tension between truth and grace. Do, Do you recognize that there is an amazing amount of tension between truth and grace? It, it, it is unsettling at times because I don't know about you, but, but I like truth when it's about someone else, but I like grace when it's about me. Does anybody else struggle with that? Thank you. Lord, I'm in the right place today. Because arrogance is not a spiritual attribute. The Pharisees were the ones, now you got to think about this. Now, these aren't just like hideous, horrible people. These are the people that who carried the weight of the law, the word of God. They were the spiritual guides. They were the spiritual fathers of the city. But somewhere along the way, 
They were tempted by greed, by power, by selfishness, and who knows what else. And they began using the law. They began using their position. They began using their influence for their own benefit. I mean, think about this. They were using a fellow human being as a way to trap another human being. They were, they were putting her worst day on display, not even so much about her, but she was just a little pawn in a chess game. They, they were trying to get the upper hand on Jesus and they were willing to do whatever it took to make that happen. And, and can I just ask this? Doesn't that at times in our life sound like a possibility of something we might do? It just got a little uncomfortable in here, didn't it? But, but can we just be honest? I mean, isn't there something powerful about just being honest about some of the struggles that we have as, as human beings? Because aren't we blind to our arrogance? Aren't we blind to our Phariseeism? Aren't we blind to the limitations and shortcomings that we have? I mean, how many times have you witnessed or possibly even done this yourself? You've used people for religious arguments. People with a particular type of sin, how you've used their sin for you to gain power of being right. Here in the last three, four, five years, that's centered around a pretty narrow group of people that get picked out and put on display for religious people to make themselves feel better about where they are. They used her sin to trap and to leverage against another she was seen as a project or a pawn for them being right. And whenever we're tempted to do that, can I just say don't? Can I just say repent? Before we use another human being as our projectile? Because the reality is, is that we're tempted to do it most days. Now, they only bring the woman. And... and this is so important to the bigger picture of the ministry of Jesus. They don't bring the man. Of course, in that culture, women were considered less than. They were possessions. They did not have rights. They were seen as a commodity that produced goods and services for the male. Not the U.S. male, but the male population of the world. The male gender. Now, when these religious leaders prayed publicly, and they prayed publicly at least three times a day. By the way, they were encouraged to play, pray at least three times a day. And Jesus wasn't against public prayer, but he was against public prayer for the purpose of being seen praying in public. The common prayer of a man in that day would have specifically consisted in three declarations of thanksgiving that they made to God. They would have stood and they would have prayed, God, I thank you that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. God, I thank you that I am a free person and not a slave. And then the third one was the kicker. God, I thank you that I am a man and not a woman. And so we, we see this tension that exist in this situation, but really in this culture. And Paul 
in his leading by the Holy Spirit in Galatians 3.28, made this astounding statement that kind of undid what had always been done, where he said, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see that in that little prayer, that little statement, he confronts the three common themes of generations of proclamation that Jews made to God about who they were, male Jews. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Now that's not doing away with gender, but it's doing away with the distinction that males have the upper hand, which is pretty controversial among more than a few. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's a real interesting Greek word there where it uses the word all. It means all. Now, in this story, John 8, only the woman is put on display. If you remember when Joy Montoya was here, he preached on John chapter 4. The, another example of women and how they were seen. A woman at the well. Now, she had been married and divorced multiple times. And she was living with another man. She was seen as sinful. She was seen having multiple husbands, but here's the cultural backstory is that women could be divorced. A man could hand her a certificate of divorce for pretty much any reason he wanted, usually a ridiculous reason. By the way, I think I said this a couple years ago, there are laws still on the books in some of the southern states of rightful ways and reasons to divorce your wife. There was up until not too many years ago, a law in Tennessee that said a man could divorce his wife if she had cold feet in bed. And you, you can Google that. That is, that is truth. Some of you are thinking, I'm going to get a divorce. <laughs> Listen. A woman in those days had no rights. And what this story and the John 4 story does is it illuminates the difference of how men and women were viewed and treated. And if you notice that Jesus, he gives honor to women. If you notice that the way things happen in the New Testament church, women were valued. They were appreciated. I mean, Lydia, the, the church in Philippi started in her home. She probably was the most wealthy person in all of Philippi. She was seen as a leader. She was respected. The fact that she owned all that she owned. Jesus finds himself alone with this woman in John 8 after he tells them, hey, whoever doesn't have any sin, you go ahead and you throw it. Now, don't miss this. Because Jesus actually acknowledges the true fact that this woman had, in fact, committed sin. Now, we usually find ourselves offended when that is pointed out. 
when it's pointed out in our lives. We live in a culture that is afraid to acknowledge and own up to the fact that sin is a reality. I mean, here's the reality is that we can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. Why do we need a Savior? Because we're sinners. Because sinners need a Savior. When we engage in an action that is contrary to God and not God's best for us, we sin. We were created for fellowship with our Creator and to to live a life that flourishes in relationship with Him and other people. Now, it's not a popular view because people quickly become offended when we use that three-letter word, And as Jesus did with the woman in John 8, go and leave your life of sin. When we receive God's mercy, when we accept his forgiveness, that is to step into the path of walking away from what ends up destroying us, which is sin. And sin not dealt with will take root in our lives and ultimately prolong the chaos of making our sin idolatrous. There is so much tension in Jesus' statement. Has no one condemned you? Go and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't condemn the woman, but he prods her to go and to leave the life that she's been trapped in. I mean, we think we'd all agree that Jesus is the embodiment of grace. Now, for some of you, you grew up in what I'm going to call truth church. That's that's what I grew up in. It's truth church. Everything was about truth. Truth. And the reality is, is some of the truth that we heard as truth wasn't really truth. It was somebody's opinion of what truth was. And then some grew up in grace church. You know what grace church is? It doesn't matter. You just go be whoever you want to go be. You just go do whatever you want to go do. We've tried that. It doesn't work. Not only does it not work, it begins to erode our insides because we lose all sensitivity to the chaos that we're living in and we think chaos is normal. And if you grow up where chaos was normal, you probably have found a good therapist or you recognize you need a good therapist. And I don't say that jokingly. I say that 100% serious. There's so much tension in this statement. This situation, like most of our situations, is at best messy. Because you know what? Truth is painful. Grace brings healing. You want to see how to love people? Watch how Jesus loved people. He called sin, sin, and then he went and paid for it. Don't you just let that sit. He he didn't say what she did was okay because he knew she couldn't pay for it. We can't pay for what we've done. Jesus calls it sin and then he says, but I'm going to go pay for it. Having paid for it, he declared to that woman, I don't condemn you. Now that he's paid for it, he wants her, he wants for us to leave our life of sin. He then declares that he loves us. He loves us. He loves us. You ever been hurt by others? He loves you. 
The truth is, is that we are sinners, but that grace is that He loves us. You see the tension. Now, what I don't want you to hear is, is that, oh, well, I'm going to give up my truth because, no, you hold on to truth. Jesus never walked away from truth because He understands the consequences of not being made new. Because remember, Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We, we don't want to live that kind of dead life because it keeps producing death. And so when we receive God's grace, it makes us new. It makes us alive. We just have to recognize we can't pay for it. We have to receive what he did for us. If we try to resolve it on our own, we actually make it messier. Matter of fact, Galatians 5 says, if you try to justify yourself by law, you do what? You fall from grace. Jesus didn't go to the cross so God would nitpick us to hell. Jesus went to the cross because we couldn't do anything for ourselves. And when we try to build a system where we justify how good or right we are, what we're doing is we're nullifying the sacrifice of Christ. We're saying, well, really, I didn't need that. I can figure this out. Which is, by the way, is arrogance. And didn't we say earlier that arrogance is not a spiritual gift? You see, sin has a gotcha. You ever sat at the table with somebody, they wanted to have a conversation with you, and you can tell they've got something that they're ready to spring out on you because they think that you don't know that they know what they know and they think you don't know. And they're just sitting there and then they throw it out at you like, I'm just going to shove this in your face and watch you react and you don't respond. And then they're like really disappointed because they've been waiting for like weeks to just throw this thing at you. And you're like, okay. Sin has a gotcha. Sin got us. Grace is our only way home. Our only way back to the Father. We we have to learn to be comfortable with the mess, which isn't easy, by the way. Not comfortable living in the mess, comfortable with the mess, because that uncomfortableness between truth and grace. The truth is, yeah, we blew it. The grace is, is that he paid for it. Um, for those of you who are parents, you remember when you were trying to teach your first child to say either mama or dada? You remember the competition, though you never made it a open competition? And you see, y'all get it. You're waiting to see who's going to win. Say mama. <laughs> say dada. And you go around and any chance you get, it's not about playing with the baby. It's about teaching one word. <laughs> and that some kids are developmentally delayed because they only learn two words in the first year and a half of their life. <laughs> and, and, and whichever parent that the child doesn't say their name, is there not a little hurt there? Is there not a little disappointment? You can acknowledge that. That's okay. We're in church. It's okay. It's that that crazy thing. We we become so hurt when we don't win. It's kind of in the same way. We have very little joy when we think about how God has done everything for us, and then we give ourselves to our idols. 
Because we make idols of being right. We make idols of winning. We make idols of the rules and the systems we build around ourselves to make us feel better of ourselves. And God is saying, I have poured out the love of the universe so you would know who you are. Idolatry is when we give to something less that which is only intended for God. I don't know the situation this woman found herself in. I would imagine that she's been passed around from man to man to man trying to survive. (coughs) She probably was easy picking for the situation because everybody knew the brokenness of her life. And rather than stepping in and providing healing and hope and joy, they took her brokenness and they used it against her. about you, but that speaks to the vast brokenness of the world we live in when we will take someone's brokenness and we'll use it for our benefit, for our delight, for our being right, for our getting power, simply because it's not the way of Jesus. And some of you are going, man, we're focusing on sin today. Here's the deal. When we can acknowledge our sin, we have a better, more full understanding of God's grace. If you don't see that you've done anything wrong, grace means nothing to you. You don't believe you have anything to be forgiven for. But when you understand that it is only grace... It changes everything. Titus 2 tells us that the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. Well, how does that happen? Well, when you can look at where you were in life and where God's grace has leading you and gotten you, you don't forget that past journey. And you don't revel in that past journey. You delight in the grace that changed everything. Jesus is on the cross you remember it says that he was, he was crucified between two. You know what kind of people they were? You know, it's kind of an interesting thing. It uses the word thieves, but they didn't crucify people for being thieves. Most thieves were probably um, moved into the Roman service to, to row boats or to build things. But whatever these two have done, it has been decided that they cannot be trusted with anything, that their life needs to end. (laughs) At some point, one of those guys looks at Jesus, and then he looks at his buddy who is harassing Jesus, and he makes this statement, we are getting what we deserve. Now, Jesus didn't look at him and go, no, you're a good guy. You made a bad choice. You're really, really good. You're smart. You're funny. People love being around. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus is like, yeah, that's right. You're getting what you deserve. But the guy also said what? Father, remember me, which was his prayer of salvation. Do you realize, think about this. He and Jesus went to the same place. Today, Jesus says, you will be 
with me. When we realize how far we are from God before we accept Him, and we receive His gift, when we see fully where we are and how much God loves us, it changes everything about how we see God in His grace. But if you don't feel like you need much grace, O Pharisee, where art thou? Some of you, some of you, the young people won't know anything about this. Some of you remember the, the vacuum cleaners like Electrolux that had the bag that went inside the canister and you closed it and had the little tube and you never saw what was in it. You just vacuumed it and after a month or so you'd throw the bag away. And then they had to go and do it, make a vacuum cleaner like the wind tunnel that has the little clear window where you can see how horrible it is. And you're like, oh my gosh, my kids can never be on the floor again. <laughs> You, you just kind of vacuum to pick up the crumbs and stuff that you kind of see spotted. You don't ever vacuum the whole room. You just kind of, get, you know, in the, and yet now that you can see what's actually being picked up, you're like, oh my gosh, we need to vacuum every five minutes. <laughs> There's something about seeing that changes our perspective. When we see without God's love and grace where we are, it changes our perspective. If, if we feel like that there's nothing wrong and we don't need really anything, we might need a little bit. I mean, I mean I'm the top of the mountain. If God just pushed me over, I'm good. You see, it changes our whole perspective of grace. In our arrogance, we struggle with fully realizing how much we need the grace of God. And to that woman, he said, go and sin no more. And here's the truth. The power of the story is when we can see ourselves in that woman, powerless. Or we see ourselves in the arrogance of the spiritual leaders. We begin to see that all sin, all sin needs God's grace. The adulterer and the judgmental people punishers all need the same thing because Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. All, all have fallen short of the glory of God. It's why he tells them to drop that stone. There is so much tension between truth and grace. Truth and grace. I mean, if you are gossiping about someone because you feel they are unworthy for God's grace, drop that stone. If if you're condemning that someone is beyond God's grace, drop that stone. If you're wondering why someone even comes to church, if you, you have a heart that is so hard and different that they have no hope, drop that stone. If, if we believe anyone is beyond God's redemptive work, if we believe someone is beyond his power and his grace, we need to drop that stone. You see, the good news for that woman, the good news for you, the good news for me is, is that God is not yet done. He is still at work. And it may not be going the way we think it ought to go, and it may not be going at the pace we think it ought to go, but he is still at work. He says, if you haven't sinned, you throw the stone. If you've never looked lustfully on another person, you go ahead and start the chaos. But here's another truth. And these are the two things I want to close with. 
The church, my friends, is at its best when it embraces both grace and truth and refuses to let go of either. The church is at its best when it holds on to both grace and truth and refuses to let go of either. Because grace and truth provide attention that we need. It reminds us that we can't do it ourselves, but it also reminds us <coughs> that we can't do it ourselves. And it reminds us that without his intervention, there is no hope. And that's not to put us down, that's just reality being reality. And then I'll. Jesus says to the woman, just as he says to you and I, yes, you sinned, but I paid for it. Yes, you sinned, but I paid for it. And that may be the most offensive thing that we talk about today. Because what we hate, pseudo-hate, is to be out with someone and they want to buy your whatever. Oh, well, let me get it. You got it last time. Well, I'll, you can pay for me anytime you want. <laughs> but I'm probably going to fight you over it. Why? Because there's something... I'm struggling with you doing for me what I know I ought to do for myself. Sad reality is, is that's a lot of the attitude we have towards God. I, I want to do this myself. Can you, can you just let me figure this one out? Well, Craig, if you figure it out, you're going to realize that the only thing you can do is fall down on your knees and say, Oh, God. But in my arrogance, I'm like, God, just let me work at this a little bit. Do you, do you know how smart I am? Do you know how many things that I can do? That's why I'm saying the only thing you can do is fall on your knees. I mean, that woman has no power that day. She is as guilty as sin. She's guilty as sin. And God says, you're, you're guilty but I don't condemn you because I've already paid for it. That's the hope of why people hold on to Jesus. If you're here and you're not a believer, that's the part of this thing that you don't get. It's that we recognize we can't fix ourselves because we made some bad choices. And today we own up to it. Proverbs 28.3 says, for the one who conceals their sin, they find no freedom. But the one who confesses finds hope. And that's like, oh, what do I do with that? Because what if they, we already know. Because we know we're broken. Just like you know you're broken. Some have just come to acknowledge it a little sooner than others. And there's only one. There's only one. And that tension between grace and truth, oh my goodness. Well, Craig, what if I get it wrong? We're going to get it wrong. God's not judging us on a 100-point test. 
He's judging us on this one thing. Who's your Savior? You or the God of the universe? You or the God of the universe? Let's pray. So, Father, as we... uh, God, as we wrestle with this idea of truth and grace, Lord, I I have to believe that this text has come at the beginning of the year because, Lord, this is the battle that most of us fight every day. We want so desperately to be right. And yet deep in our hearts, we know we are so inconsistent and blow it so much and we don't want to let go of truth. And Lord, we need to hear, hold on to truth. But depend on grace. Don't let truth become your arrogance because you figured it out. And Lord, somehow you work this tension to mature us and to grow us and yet to humble us and make us more loving. And I don't even begin to know how that works. But I know you're good. And so, Lord, this morning, Lord, we just want to open the door this morning for those who struggle, are struggling, have been struggling with whatever. We want to open the door to that prayer room and say, let's talk about the one who paid it for those who could. And Lord, we just want to ask you to meet us at the table as we have communion today, as we take the body and the bread uh, and the cup, Lord, and we are reminded that we couldn't save ourselves. And Lord, for some of us, that's so offensive because we think we're smart enough and we're good enough and we've got it all together. And the reality is, is that we know deep in our hearts we're a mess. So Lord, meet us at the table. Speak to us, Lord God. May your graciousness fall. Lord, I pray that, Lord, I pray for some that maybe even for the first time they, they step over in that prayer room and say, I'm a mess because I think I'm not a mess. Lord, however you choose to work in us, Lord, we, we say here we are. And Lord, for those that need to just bow their heart to you and and raise their hand and say, I'm the one that's in the sin, Lord, would you save? And Lord, for them to experience for the first time your redemptive love in their heart, they cry out to you as their Savior, as their God, as their Lord, their Father. Lord, would you do your work in us today? Lord, we don't want to live by resolutions. We want to live in the tension of truth and grace, leaning and depending upon your grace to do what we can't do. In the name of Jesus, amen.